You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, guys, I'm just gonna be honest. Like, I was—I almost lost my voice singing. Uh, that was—that was amazing. Thank you guys for leading us this morning in worship. Uh, well, this morning we get to enter in what, for centuries, Christians have called Holy Week, and the first day of this Holy Week begins with what we call Palm Sunday. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. As I was thinking about this particular day in the Holy Week, I was thinking about something that is a common occurrence that we all experience in life. And that is when we build things up with great anticipation, great expectation. And perhaps you've been in this scenario before where you've built something up with such great expectation, with such great expectation and anticipation that it actually leaves you sorely disappointed. I'll give you two examples from my life. One, when I was younger, I could remember my dad and my brother and I were very excited for the release of a particular movie. 16 years in the making, or in the waiting, I guess I should say, uh, this particular movie or this uh, this franchise of movies was sweeping the, the country, the planet even. Uh, it was such a big deal that people were camping out waiting to get tickets to this movie. And I'm talking about none other than episode one of Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Now, the thing about The Phantom Menace was that it was 16 years in waiting that George Lucas came back to the big screen to give us the long-awaited origin story of Darth Vader. As people came, and, and I know some of you Star Wars nerds, y'all can get at me with your hot takes later, but uh, I'm just going to be honest with you, most people in history believe this was a sore disappointment after waiting 16 years. Uh, thank you, yeah, right? Uh, there was a lot of reasons why it was a disappointment, but probably most notos- notably, it gave us the most annoying character in cinematic history, Jar Jar Binks, okay? Um, <laughs> Now, perhaps one, uh, one other disappointment that is a little more uh, recent, in fact, something that happens this weekend uh, in the life of sports, and that is none other than the Masters. Now, some of you may be fans of the Masters, but I'm not just a fan of the Masters. I'm a fan of a certain person who plays in the Masters, namely Tiger Woods. Now, the reason why is because Tiger Woods has this way about him as when he walks onto the green, it is like this triumphal entry into this holy land known as Augusta National in which the, the crowds just flock around him. Go ahead and show that next picture, Nick. I mean, it's just amazing to see when he tees off how many people are around this man. And the reason why is he moves through the crowds and the crowds literally swarm him at other places. They are there because they're hoping that this man will do the impossible. They had this hope in Tiger Woods that he is going to break through with this massive victory. And if you're watching the Masters this weekend, you're going to be sorely disappointed because he's not going to break through in victory. <laughs> now, whether it's episode one or Tiger Woods or other things in life, there, there are many times where we have set expectations of something, anticipation of something that can leave us disappointed because we don't meet those expectations. It's not just a feeling for us, but even as we enter in Holy Week, this was the feeling of many of Jesus' first followers. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they have anticipation, they have expectation for what kind of king he will be. And many of them will be sorely disappointed. Because as Jesus enters in, he's entering in in a way that will blow their minds, in a way that they could not fathom, in a way that their expectations could not, in fact, be met 
but enlarged and expanded. And perhaps the same reasons that Jesus doesn't meet their expectations here, perhaps some of the same reasons that today we might find if we're honest with ourselves, Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. And as we see this passage, what I want us to see is the beauty and really the reason why Jesus enters in the way he does into Jerusalem. Because as we see his interest into holy, what we're going to find is that the expectations set were too small for what Jesus would actually come to do. That the main idea of Palm Sunday, what it's screaming at us from the text, is simply this point, And that is that Jesus is the true king. He comes in to display his kingship in a way that only he can. And if we miss this today, then perhaps we'll leave here sorely disappointed. But if we can understand why Jesus came, what he did, and what his kingship means for us, then today we can experience the beauty and the satisfaction of knowing Jesus as our king. And so as we engage with Palm Sunday, which is typically referred to as the first day of Holy Week, this triumphal entry of Jesus after three years of his earthly ministry, he is now coming into Jerusalem. His royal arrival is finally happening, and they're met with expectations here. And so as we go through this text, as John records it in John chapter 12, we're going to look at three things of a king, any king really, but specifically of King Jesus here. The expectations of the king, every king carries a set of expectations and anticipation. The reign of the king, what has he come to do? What territory has he come to gain? And then finally, the power of the king, what power is he displaying in his coming. So let's go ahead and dive into the text here, John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast meaning Passover, and so there's pilgrims coming from all over into Jerusalem. They're flooding the city, and you can you can perhaps assume that many of these, actually the, the Gospels tell us that many of these people coming were from the Galilee region, which saw Jesus' ministry. So they've seen what he has done, and they've heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, which palm branches were, were all over. They were of, of, of abundance there. So they took palm branches, these palm, the branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So right here, we see that the arrival of a king is met with certain anticipation and expectation. As the king comes, there are certain things that we expect him to do. We expect him to bring peace, to bring harmony, to fix our problems. That's certainly what these first onlookers were expecting of Jesus as he arrives in Jerusalem. They expected him to do something. And the reason why their expectation was so great is actually first given in this clue of the vehicle in which Jesus chooses to ride in on. He chooses this donkey. Now, we might think of a donkey as an act of humility. Like, why would he choose to to ride in on a donkey? Maybe that's an act of humility. Even Matthew's gospel says that, behold, your king is coming humble. But the donkey is actually not the mark of humility. What Jesus comes to do, as we'll see later, is the mark of humility. But the donkey represents royalty. And that's why they respond the way they do. In verse 13, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Matthew's gospel says, the son of David. Mark's gospel says, blesses the king or the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, when he comes in on this donkey, these first observers of Jesus would have seen the significance of this tying all the way back to King David's son, Solomon himself. That the son of David, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1, rides in on his inauguration on a donkey. 
And what's more even perhaps easy for us to interpret this is that John quotes, and in fact all the Gospels quote, this prophecy of Zechariah. This prophecy that was made 500 years prior to this in verse 15. Reminding us that Jesus' choice of this donkey to ride in Jerusalem was already foretold by the prophets. And if you go to Zechariah 9.9, you would see this, but more importantly, just Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted here, if you look at Zechariah 9.10, you would see why this is so important, this anointed one, this Messiah enters in Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.10 says, His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 16, the prophet says that when this Messiah comes in Jerusalem, on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And so Jesus arriving in on a donkey is very significant. Because these onlookers would see that, and they would see this is a sign of liberation, a sign of peace a sign that we're going to have this flourishing geopolitical kingdom that we've waited with anticipation. And so they take these palm branches, which you can kind of see, these would kind of be like a a national flag, so to speak, and they wave these things. And accompanying with the waving of these palm branches, they're signifying their hope in the shout of Hosanna, which literally means save us now. Their expectations that Jesus at this moment is going to save them in other words, as we've been studying uh, previous to this, the book of Exodus, this would remind the people of Exodus, right? God, just like in our Exodus from Egypt, you rescued us from the oppressive mighty Pharaoh. Do it again with the Romans. Save us now from this oppressive people. And they wave these palm branches proudly as the king rides into town. But we'll find in Holy Week is that their immediate expectations would not be met, not even remotely. Because Jesus would not be enthroned, he would come to be crucified. And their death's expectations might be hard to bear. Because this moment, these onlookers, and as the Holy Week continues, they might be thinking, are we mistaken? Is is Jesus king at all? Or is his kingship and his kingdom altogether something different than they had anticipated? You see, here lies our first lesson, I think, of Palm Sunday, and that is that the nature of God's kingdom And the arrival of the king does not meet our immediate expectations. Rather, it reshapes and enlarges them. It reshapes and enlarges them. The question for us is if the king is coming, let's just imagine right now, the king is coming. What if that is true for us right in this room today? What will we expect him to do? If Jesus walks into our space right now and he's standing right in front of us, behold, here is our king. What would we expect of him? Will we hand him our prayer list of the laundry list of things? the honey to-do list and say, Jesus, can you get to work? Here are the things we expect you to do. These are my expectations. Bring them about right now, King Jesus. What would we expect him to do? If he were to arrive and stand face to face, would we realize that he has come to do something far deeper and far more profound than any list of expectations we could ever imagine? You see, when Jesus arrives If he were to only meet their expectations, then their expectations would actually sit on the throne and Jesus would serve them. But instead, in this first Holy Week, Jesus arrives not according to the people's expectations, but according to the expectations of him and his father. Now, there's an important caveat here, because when I say that they they didn't have the right expectations, I'm not saying that he came to dash their hopes. But because he came with the expectations of his father in heaven, he actually came to bring hope. You see, when they realize here that he is reshaping and enlarging their expectations and their greatest hopes, what the people here are hoping in and their expectations are too small. 
Their problems are much bigger than the Roman Empire. Their problems are, are much, b- much bigger than the things that they think Jesus is coming to immediately help with. He needed to come in a way that could reshape and enlarge their hope because he's coming to deal with their deepest needs. And that's precisely what leads us to the reign of the king. Look at verse 14 again. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. He says, just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And the disciples, his disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. You see, when you're talking about a king or you're talking about a kingdom, we ought to think obviously about the territory of that king. What is that king conquering? What territory is that king trying to gain? People in first century, uh, a, a first century Jew would probably think about this as well, right? They would have known the, the old kingdoms, right? Go back to Exodus. You see Egypt or Syria or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or in Jesus' own day, the great Roman Empire. They would have known with these empires, with these kingdoms and these kings came a vastness of territory that these kingdoms reigned in. But Jesus comes in a different way and he comes to reign in a different way. His disciples didn't understand it at first. The crowds wanted him to wield his power to bring back land that the Romans have taken from them, but Jesus' aim was to win their hearts. The territory that he came to claim was the human heart. As one theologian puts it, to other authorities, we may make the most profound surrender. We may accept the strictest discipline in relation to them, but over against all of them, we can still remain independent at the deepest and truest level of reality. In other words, no matter how tyrannical an external ruler can be, we can still reject them in our hearts. But when King Jesus comes, he reigns in a different way than any earthly earthly king because he reigns over our hearts, which means that God's kingdom moves from the inside out, that Jesus isn't here. He's not coming into Jerusalem just after earthly territory. He's coming after our hearts to liberate us from our deepest needs, from the sin that entangles us, to free us from the lives of darkness. And they're proclaiming here, not this that Jesus is a king. When they shout Hosanna, they are proclaiming that he is the king. He is the messianic hero that they've awaited for. The one who is going to put everything right. And although that is a very Jewish hope in the Jewish scriptures, I think it is a human hope. We all long for something to come, something greater than ourselves to come and to set things right. All of us do. It's a human issue. That's why in, in modern fantasy fiction, whether Marvel movies or superhero movies, we look at these figures that can help save us, that can help rescue us, that can do the impossible. You look at ancient legends and traditions and you see this type of messianic hero throughout. This idea of a king who will come and make everything right. It's something we all long for. And even today, if we feel like, you know, especially in our American independent spirit, right? We don't have kings. We don't, we don't need kings. We don't need anyone over authority in our lives, We're our own masters, right? We're in charge of it. But as we've said time and time again here at King's Church, we are actually not. The simple matter of fact is none of us are actually in control of our lives. And here that is is displayed through the fear of the different people. The crowd here sees Jesus because they fear the Romans. And they want Jesus to come as king over the Romans. And the Pharisees, they fear Jesus because they fear that he's going to take away their power and their significance. And both of their fears here are motivated by their sense of not wanting to lose control. But the matter of fact is that none of us are truly in control. And as we said time and time again here at King's Church, we all believe that we are living for something. There's something that gives us meaning in life, something that makes us feel like I have significance, 
something that if I do this or accomplish this, then I'll have meaning and value in my life. And those things that we're living for, it doesn't serve us. We serve them. We're not in control. Those things have authority over us. In other words, we have crowned something king of our hearts. And oftentimes the very things that we crown king of our hearts, even the best things of this world, are the things that push us down and oppress us. Think about career, right? You live for a career path. If you succeed at it, it will demand more. If you fail at it, it never forgives you. You want to fulfill your parents' expectation, there's always going to be more to demand. You want to try to prove yourself through your, apparent, your physical appearance. Well, if something happens to that, you're going to feel horrible about yourself. Because when you crown something as king of your hearts, you cannot live up to it. It will never forgive you. It will never satisfy you. It will leave you empty and grasping for more because we were made for another king. That's because something is crowning our hearts that is not the true king. You see, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are proclaiming that he is the true king. He is the one that we're looking for. He is the one who can help us. He is the one who can satisfy us. If we're crowning something else in our hearts, those are the things we're not meant for. And they will not provide satisfaction. And I think he gives us a picture of this, actually, where he goes next in Jerusalem. If we were to continue in Holy Week on Monday, he goes first to where? The temple. When he arrives, Jesus goes to the temple and he drives out all those who sold and bought in the temple and he overturns tables of the money changers of the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he quotes from Isaiah and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Where does Jesus go when he first arrives? He doesn't march around the walls of Jerusalem and say, I claim this city as my own territory. He goes right for the temple. He goes right for the jugular, right? Because the temple was the center of the world for the Jews, to create a modern example would be if we took like the National Cathedral, we took like the, the, the uh, Congress, and we took the White House, and we made it one entity. We said, this is the center of the city. That's the temple. It was the ultimate place where God dwelt with his people. It was the one place where heaven met earth. And that's where Jesus goes. And he essentially says to them, your temple is not clean. If your temple is not clean, then nothing else will go correctly. What is Jesus putting on display in his first act here? He says, what is at the center of our hearts is what is at the center of our worship. That's why Paul later would, would refer to this idea of a temple in 1 Corinthians, and he would say, do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? In other words, the temple becomes you and me, and that the territory that the king wants to claim is our hearts. And this is why the freedom that Jesus brings cannot merely be about dealing with geopolitical forces, whether it be the Romans, or the Greeks, or those before them. Jesus has come to free us in a much deeper way, because we have a much deeper and sinister problem, namely sin. And the things of this earth that we put in place as king of our hearts. And he has come to reign and to free people from every tribe, language, and tongue, from their deepest issues, from the things that we serve, and, and the things that pull us away from him being the true king. And so in his arrival here, he's not only saying, I'm coming in a way that you didn't expect or anticipate, but I'm coming to reign in a way that you have never seen. I'm coming to reign in your hearts. And then finally, his reign is accompanied by his power. In verse 16, we see the reaction of the disciples. The disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, when we talk about a kingdom, we have to talk about the power. 
because a king needs to have some type of power or else he's not a king. Perhaps the most surprising thing about God's kingdom and the way Jesus comes here is his power. It's surprising, it's paradoxical. The people have seen his power displayed, that's why they come, right? They're saying, we just saw you raise Lazarus from the dead. We know you can do something miraculous, Jesus, so we want to flock to you. They've seen his power on display, and they want him to wield this miraculous power in in a way of strength over the Romans. The Pharisees, they know his power, and they're afraid of it. They realize that, look, we've gained nothing, guys. They don't even know what to do at this moment. The disciples know his power, but they don't quite understand it yet. It's surprising. It's paradoxical. Because Jesus, he comes to be enthroned as king by laying down his life. See, the first thing we can notice about the nature of his power actually, again, comes through the words of the prophet Zechariah. Again, the gospel writers here, they're quoting Zechariah 9.9, but uh, in all the gospels, they, they leave out one particular phrase. And I think it's important to understand that, that they leave out this particular phrase in all their citations. Let's read Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a fowl of a donkey. You see, there's a particular phrase that is omitted when John quotes this, and that is the phrase, righteous and victorious. Now, why would the gospel writers omit this in their quote of Zechariah 9.9? Well, I believe it's to force us to look at how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Not as one we might say is victorious and righteous, but one who is humble and gentle. You see, Jesus deliberately comes in a way that is almost like a satire of a triumphal entry. Any other other king or army that would come into the city would not ride on the fowl of a donkey. If you were a military, conquering military hero, you would ride in on a war horse. But Jesus is not coming as a military leader. He's coming as this low and gentle figure to reshape Israel's hope in a way that they could hardly anticipate, a way that would lead to the cross. That's why I believe the gospel writers here omit this, because they don't speak of his triumph and victory until after his resurrection. And dropping this phrase, they're forcing us to look at his humility. The way Jesus wills his power here on Palm Sunday is through meekness. The way he wields his power is through his humility. And again, as we said, it's not the donkey that's the the mark of humility. It's what Jesus has come to do that is seen in his humility. He has not come to bear a sword and overthrow his enemies when he enters in Jerusalem. Instead, he comes and he washes the disciples' feet. He allows himself to be betrayed. He remains silent when he's falsely accused and beaten. And finally, he will offer himself to be crucified. That is his humility. And his humility and meekness is how he wields his power. Which I think tells us two things about the power of God's kingdom and the way he displays this. The first is that the kingdom of God is not advanced through coercion of force, but to but by pursuit. Uh, yesterday, some of you were at uh, Jack and Claire's wedding. It was a, it was a great celebration. I'm um, glad we made it back uh, last night, but we had a fun time at the wedding. It was, it was amazing to see this, this couple come together and the love and commitment that a wedding ceremony exemplifies, right? But if you look at the history of marriage, you'll see that there's other times in, in history where marriage wasn't about love and commitment, mutual love and commitment. It was about coercion or force, right? Uh, one spouse would, would essentially force another one to marry them. 
And in doing so, they were legally married, but one thing was missing from that, and that was that that spouse would never win the other's heart by doing that. But yesterday, what we saw in the display of Jack and Claire was two who have committed themselves to each other and love one another, and in doing so, they have won each other's hearts. And that's precisely how the power of God works. It comes in meekness because God's not here making mercenaries. He's making children. He's patient with us. He desires to woo us. He desires to draw us, not through fear, but through his sacrificial love. And in doing so, what happens is he wins over our hearts. And this is how Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this Holy Week. He comes triumphant, but he comes humble in such a way to show us how he's going to pursue us by laying down his life for his friends. But it also tells us that the grace of God is our strength. Think about this for a moment. Jesus could have arrived in any way he wanted, right? This is God arriving as king in Jerusalem, the God who has at his fingertips all the power in the world. He could have chosen any way he wanted to bring about his kingdom in this moment. And we should assume that if he is God, he would choose the most effective way possible to come into the city. In this case, he chooses grace. Grace, God's free gift to us, his free gift of love mediated through the death of his son. And the reason why he comes this way is because it's only through grace that the scales of God's justice can be upheld while still offering hope to the unjust, you and me. Our sin is ugly. And it's an offense to God that we have put something else on the throne of our hearts. And what the disciples did not know yet and did not understand in this moment is that Jesus was come not to be glorified by sitting on an earthly throne, but on a rugged cross. So that the ugliness of our sin could be taken away so that we can receive forgiveness, so that God the Father could look down on us and see that we've been cleansed, that we've been made right, and that we are beautiful and loving in his sight. That is the hope of the world. That is how Jesus came triumphantly into Jerusalem. And this is the reason why at the end of our text, the Pharisees are so upset. They realize in this moment that they are losing power. They realize in this moment that they don't know what to do next. Jesus, as he has come into the city, the way he has triumphantly displaying his power, displaying his reign, that he is the king, it forces their hand. They either need to receive him and crown him as king or kill him. They will either have to have him as king in their lives or have him not at all. They choose to kill him. But it's precisely through his death that we experience life change this morning. And so as we come to our time of conclusion and we go to the Lord's table, I ask as we enter this Holy Week, as we celebrate Good Friday, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, that we consider this today, that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes as the true king, and he calls us today to surrender to him. And that means surrendering our expectations. That means recognizing that the king's eternal perspective is better than ours. That no matter what circumstances we might be going through this Palm Sunday, we can come to Jesus. We can experience his healing, his love, his freedom. A freedom that can set us free from all the other kings that we've served, from all the other false gods that we've bowed down to. He alone can dethrone the false expectations of the things that we have reigning in our hearts today, and he can enthrone himself. So today, come to Jesus. See your triumphant king. He has come to love you and to lay down his life for you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.